The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The cutoffs have changed slightly over the years, generally less than 80. You go above 80, mild, 50 to 80 is moderate, 35 to 50 is severe, and less than 35 is very severe. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call focuses on chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. We refer to an article from the in the clinic section of the annals from August 4th, 2020, titled Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease. Joining me on this podcast is Dr. Anand Iyer, who's a pulmonary critical care physician and geriatrics palliative care researcher at UAB. He is the founder of PallyPulm on Twitter, which is a social media community devoted to expanding the integration of palliative care into routine pulmonary practice. He recently won UAB's first prestigious Paul Beeson Emerging Leaders Career Development Award in Aging. We hope you will enjoy this podcast. Anand, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. COPD is something that really is a challenge for both outpatient and inpatient internists. As you know, I'm an academic hospitalist at a VA, and so we see a lot of people with COPD. And I see a lot of mistakes being made, and so I thought it'd be worthwhile for us to go over uh, diagnosis, treatment, who gets COPD, when is it COPD, when is it something else, and then really think about what our obligations are to the patient to try to improve the quality of life of our patients with COPD. The first big question, and this happens in outpatient medicine all the time, if I'm seeing an outpatient and I suspect COPD, what is required for me to make that diagnosis? Thanks for having me on, Bob. And that's an important question that I see a lot as a pulmonologist getting referrals from primary care. Number one, the most required thing is a spirometry. And not just any spirometry, but a spirometry with pre and post bronchodilator. The main point there is you want to know if this obstruction, the O in COPD, is fixed or reversible. And reversible would lead to something like asthma. Fixed would be COPD. So how to get a spirometry. And what's your cutoff to make a diagnosis of COPD? So you look at that FEV1 to FEC ratio. That is a fixed um, obstruction, uh, less than 0.7 or 70% there. Okay. And because this comes up on rounds all the time, when do you also get lung volumes? So lung volumes are a good question. They're not necessarily required to make the diagnosis of COPD, but what they help you do is phenotype. Does that person have hyperinflation or air trapping? So that would be one reason to get a lung volume using the total lung capacity or their residual volume. And then also the DLCO or the diffusion that can help you guide, uh, guide you about oxygen exchange and whether or not that's emphysema that's present. Okay. 
we all think about smokers getting COPD and whenever someone is short of breath and has a 30 pack year history, we just assume they have COPD. First, we're going to get a spirometry, but there are COPD patients who never smoked. How do you see that? And when should we suspect it in non-smokers? That's a really good question. I mean, again, not all that smokes is um, COPD. Not all people who smoke and have shortness of breath have COPD. For those who don't smoke and develop COPD, you got to think about how bad did they have asthma? Did they have other exposures, uh, whether it be at work or maybe they live in, a, in, a, in another country and they burn wood at, to cook with, um, wood burning stoves. Other exposures can cause airflow obstruction. And then there are more rare causes like alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, especially if that person is younger and there's a family history of COPD and people who do not smoke, got to raise that red flag to maybe get tested for that. Does the chest x-ray help you there that you might want to go ahead and get pulmonary functions because their chest x-ray suggests something? I mean, it can help. Yeah, it's possible. Okay. So now I have this patient with COPD and I'm still having a little difficulty getting my hands around the severity indexes. Do you use the gold? Is that what most pulmonologists use or do you just use mild, moderate, severe, and very severe? How do you categorize COPD and is that important? Oh, it's, it's very important to categorize COPD, but getting down to the nitty gritty of using these American Thoracic Society, European Respiratory Society words like mild, moderate, severe, and very severe versus gold, which is the global initiative for chronic obstructive lung disease. That's a major international society that came together to come up with criteria. And those are numbers, one, two, three, four, plus other gold stages. To me, it seems to keep it simple, use those mild, moderate, severe. They have outcomes-based connections. They tie to outcomes. So does gold, but it's often used more in research settings. So for me, I would use, I would for, for the practicing primary care clinician, stick with the mild, moderate, severe, very severe. That's perfectly okay. But when you get to us, we as pulmonologists, we would we may start to incorporate that language, communicating to others because there are fine-tuned nuances that that might help us prognosticate a little bit too. So how do you define mild, moderate, and severe and very severe? So like I have a patient on my service right now who has an FEV1 to FEC ratio of 50%. Right. So you get the ratio first, less than 0.7 or less than 70%. That confirms they have obstruction. Then you look at their FEV1. I'm thinking back to those lectures in medical school first year. Go to that next stage of your pulmonary function test and you look at that FEV1. And then you use that to guide your severity. And the cutoffs have changed slightly over the years, but generally less than 80. You go above 80, mild, 50 to 80 is moderate, 35 to 50 is severe, and less than 35 is very severe. That's your percent of FEV1. Percent of FEV1, not FEV1. Not to the ratio, right. Okay. Okay. I think our guy uh, actually is severe. Yeah, he's right there on the edge of moderate to severe. Well, it was 50% FEV1 to FEC, but I think that uh, his FEV1 was un- under one. I think he was somewhere in a rat. It, it was a low number. In the 30s or 40s, yeah. Yeah, so in the 30s. it's very low. Yeah. Do you do any additional tests? So when, when do you screen for uh, 
congenital diseases uh, like alpha one antitrypsin? Do you, does the CBC help you? Uh, does, are you worried about eosinophilia? I assume that some of our COPD patients have a major asthma component also. I mean, there are other tests to get if you've confirmed COPD and you're concerned about their symptom burden being a little bit out of the ordinary uh, progressive dyspnea. Maybe they're having episodic exacerbations that makes you think, oh, maybe there's an asthmatic component. You can go down the route of a CBC looking for eosinophilia to guide you on inhaled therapies like inhaled corticosteroids and whether or not they could be on it and whether it'd be safe to start weaning them from it. That's also the important point of knowing about eosinophilia. There's also CT scans that we sometimes will get to characterize how bad their emphysema is in their lungs. So if they have where it is, how bad it is, can guide us onto advanced therapies for COPD like lung volume reduction surgery or bronchoscopic therapies. Um, These are things we think about, but just by looking at the scans. So blood work can help characterize things. CT scans and imaging may be necessary, but oftentimes it's only the pulmonologist who might be doing that. And the things like alpha-1, if you have somebody who's younger age who develops those classic symptoms of COPD and has it confirmed on a spirometry, post-bronchodilator spirometry, yeah, you probably ought to think about testing, sending the genetic test because you may find that. Okay, so we diagnose COPD and the patient's still smoking. Is the story over or is it worthwhile for them to stop smoking? (laughs) Great question. I probably spend about 75% of my clinic visits on this. I mean, all day, every day. Tobacco cessation has a clear uh, correlation with uh, improved outcomes. Mortality, symptom benefit, stability of your lung function decline, you name it. If they continue to smoke, their lung function declines at an accelerated rate compared to those who stop. And so... That is priority number one for me, even beyond inhalers and, and anything else. It's once I've diagnosed it and I've gotten their severity level and I've said, okay, now we got, here's the situation. Do you smoke still? <laughs> got to get them off. And unfortunately, I'm referred as a pulmonologist, many patients, probably the vast majority who come to me still heavy smokers without any attempts at tobacco cessation. And that becomes pretty burdensome on us with a subspecialist to continue that discussion or to start it from scratch. So when I was doing primary care um, and when my colleagues do primary care, we should beat on the smoking cessation as much as possible. And I remember being taught many years ago that you can increase the chance that somebody will stop smoking just if you tell them you need to stop smoking. That that in and of itself works in a, in a percentage of the people. Yeah, but, it does. But when you're trying to help a COPD patient stop smoking, what if they say they want to vape? This is a controversial topic, and it's hard as a pulmonologist to say I'm going to let somebody use another device to inhale something into their lungs. It would have to be a really case-by-case situation. The amount of nicotine that's in vaping is significantly high and sometimes way higher than cigarettes. And so though they might stop smoking... They oftentimes continue to vape, even in the major trials, six months and beyond. So they might have, in some situations, stopped smoking in like healthy smokers. We call them healthy smokers without COPD. But for somebody with severe like COPD on spirometry and then continues to vape, it could be dangerous. 
and I would have to say do it on a case-by-case basis. I can't necessarily recommend it outright. You go with patches and you go with uh, nicotine gum and things like that, preferably. Multiple strategies at once. That's what I've learned helps the best. Not just the patch, not just the gum alone, but patches and gum used in conjunction with another agent like an SNRI uh, pill. Um, So it's, it's, it's about two different attack strategies in addition to counseling. So I I know this is something that frustrates uh, primary care internists a lot, and I'm sure frustrates pulmonologists a lot. What kind of success rate do you you think that you get with these patients who I assume are usually, by the time you see them, they're moderate, severe, or very severe? I have a pretty good success rate in my clinic, and I kind of do a little bit of a shoot me straight doc strategy. Yeah. I'm like, look, this is where your lung function is. This is where you're going to be. And in a couple of years, I'm walking you around this clinic to test you for oxygen because this is where you're headed in a couple of years. And do you want to reclaim this? I go through the five A's of tobacco cessation counseling and I, and I encourage it and I'm supportive. And I think my success rate is pretty high. I wish I, I could look it up and see, yeah. but Showing them tangible outcomes, like this is what you can get benefit from. You won't need those inhalers anymore. You'll be able to walk further. Your lung function is not going to decline anymore. And your quality of life will be significantly better. It's, it's just a, that's the impact you got to make. That raises a very interesting question. And that is, what is the use of inhalers and nebulizers? Or are there any oral medications? And how do you decide to start someone on the inhalers or the nebulizers and which do you prefer? How are you approaching that? Because I'm sure you get some early COPD, but you get a lot uh, more in the medium, the, the moderate and severe range. That's a great question. I get people referred to me at all stages, just like you said, because unfortunately it's not even confirmed when they're referred to me. The patient may have COPD, but they haven't done the spirometry we yeah. talked about. They haven't done the history we talked about. If I do confirm it, I and I do grade their severity, like we said, by lung function, FEV1. I then move to the gold letter grades. And this, to me, is a fundamental that primary care should learn. These are different than those stages we talked about. There are letter grades A, B, C, and D in a box, in a two-by-two table. A is in the bottom left corner. D is in the top right corner. And as you progress from A to D, you're going to way more symptom burden and shortness of breath and COPD, disease activity, coughing, sputum production, breathlessness, you name it, as well as exacerbations that put them in the hospital or not. So a person in A is minimally symptomatic and doesn't have a lot of exacerbations. A person in B is very symptomatic, doesn't have much exacerbations. C gets exacerbated a lot, sees in the hospital. And then D, they're very symptomatic all the time, short of breath, coughing, sputum production, and they go they need steroids and antibiotics a lot for, for exacerbation. So based on those boxes, it's pretty simple. Society has come up with when, when to start an inhaler in each one of those boxes. Long acting, short acting to long acting as you progress higher. So I put those people in those boxes based on their symptom burn. I'll do a survey in clinic. And I recommend this, uh, the, the modified medical research council scale for dyspnea. Uh, or the COPD assessment test, they take a few minutes to do that gets you a number and that number puts you into one of those boxes. 
plus their exacerbation history. It's very simple to do, doesn't take much time, but gives you objective evidence. And then use that objective evidence to say, I need a short acting inhaler like albuterol or atrovent to something longer like teotropium, long acting, or eventually an inhaled corticosteroid with a long acting bronchodilator. So if someone is listening to this and says, hey, I really would like to do that, how do I, how do I get my hands on it? If I understand right, you can search this on Google or any other search engine, and you can find the gold criteria that'll, that'll actually give you that whole table. Yeah, you just do gold letter grade COPD. And yeah. you, you search that up and you'll have an image within seconds that'll show you exactly that. It's not just defining their letter grade, but then looking beyond that into the booklet that's provided that says, in this letter grade, start these and inhaler. And it's usually a less is more strategy until they're very symptomatic and you have to add more. Inhalers have become extraordinarily expensive in, in the United States. I often discuss with uh, the students and residents that if the patient's paying out of their own pocket, buying a nebulizer and, and getting nebulizer solution is a lot less expensive than getting inhaler. Am I crazy here? Is that, does that make sense? Is that something you have to deal with with patients? I reopened a pulmonary clinic down the street from the academic medical center yeah. for underserved citizens in Jefferson County. That's it. We call that hospital Cooper Green. Mm -hmm. It used to be inpatient. Now it's ambulatory. So this is something I deal with all the time. You can do the strategy of the less expensive solutions, uh, nebulizer solutions. Yeah, that's one strategy. You can put inhaled steroids in a nebulizer form, budesonide. You could do albuterol. That's definitely doable. Or you can work with case management social workers to use patient assistance programs that exist for every one of those inhalers. And we do that regularly. What's your success rate in getting patients to use inhalers properly? Because I teach them at every clinic visit, it's high. It's almost universal. That's because I put a picture, I have a, on my wall in clinic are all the inhalers. And I ask every patient at every visit, no matter if I know what they're on or not, I ask them, what inhalers are you taking? Can you point them to them on this, on this map? Uh, on this diagram. So I asked them what they're using and then I asked them to show, show me. One point we had pharmacy students incorporated in my clinic who regularly demonstrated inhalers. And in our academic medical center, we have respiratory therapists who demonstrate how to use discus-based inhalers versus meter dose inhalers. Every time you're supposed to do that, you'll be amazed at how frequent improper inhaler use is, is going on. They'll spray it on like cologne or perfume instead of even in their mouth or they'll use an inhaler that's meant for as needed regularly or vice versa their maintenance inhaler scheduled as needed six times a day i've had that happen a lot so check your inhaler adherence at every visit on that was just beautiful because i remember uh, i remember a great story when chromalin sodium first came out and i was in, uh, i was a medical student and I, I was at a pediatric asthma clinic and this lady came in, the chromalin sodium wasn't helping. And the, the pediatrician said, how do you use it? She says, well, uh, I take the chromalin had to be crushed. It was, it was put into an inhaler and crushed. And she swallowed the pill and then crushed the inhaler. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and so I learned very early on that that was true. And I think that that is really good advice for primary care offices but it's also really good advice when we're discharging people from the hospital to make sure that's being done appropriately 
or even when they're being admitted to the hospital to find out if, if they're having problems with their inhalers. Yeah, inhaler education is 101, inhaler adherence and demonstrating the techniques, um, especially if you're dealing with older adults. Since I do research in geriatrics and palliative care, that's where you need to focus in on making sure they have the grip strength to use that meter dose inhaler, that they can actually pump the pump, right? And how, what else could we do? Is that when you need to switch to a nebulizer modality? Maybe so. I assume you have some people who use nebulizers for their maintenance and then have a rescue inhaler. Yeah, they do. Correct. Yeah. Well, let's finish up this section of COPD with immunizations and how important immunizations are uh, for uh, patients with COPD. The simplest thing to say is they're very important. Yearly influenza and regular pneumococcal vaccinations are, are basic to improve outcomes, to reduce exacerbations. So I encourage every primary care clinician to ensure that your patients with COPD are up to date on their influenza vaccine and their pneumococcal. It's just that important to reduce their, their, their improve their outcomes in the long run. So if a patient comes in now, let's say a 60-year-old uh, patient comes in with uh, COPD and they've, they've not had pneumococcal before, do you still do both pneumococcals or do you just go straight to the 23-valent? I think now we can just go to the 23-valent. Um, it's, if not recently, I believe it was released that you don't have to necessarily do the 13. Yeah. Well, that's great. So in finishing this, this is part one. What is the biggest thing that you want your uh, primary care internal medicine colleagues and your hospitalist colleagues to, to know from what we've talked about thus far? Okay. The, the, to sum it up, confirm your diagnosis. You know, you taught us this even in medical school. Don't just, you question every diagnosis you get. If you get COPD, make sure that that person's not just smoking and has a cough. See if they actually have it on spirometry and make it a post-bronchodilator spirometry. Do your surveys in clinic for their symptom burden. Make sure you're checking their inhaler adherence and techniques, and then make sure you give them their vaccinations. Um, those are just basics to guide you on getting a good foundation to, to build upon uh, from there. Well, Anand, thank you so much for uh, this session, and hopefully uh, soon after this is released, we'll go into a little bit more advanced thoughts about even more severe problems with COPD. Thank you. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. In this discussion of COPD, what I would focus on first is that we must document the diagnosis with spirometry. This is not a clinical diagnosis alone, but actually does require pulmonary function studies and the lack of response to bronchodilators. Once we've done that, we can define the severity of the COPD, which will help direct further management. We talked a great deal about smoking cessation and how it's still worthwhile to work hard on smoking cessation after COPD is diagnosed. And finally, we spent a significant amount of time on the appropriate use of inhalers and nebulizers. This podcast will continue with a part two, and we hope that you've learned something thus far and will learn more from the subsequent episode. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org oncall. 
participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.